Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Here, we help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in today. And if you like what you hear today, make sure to subscribe to us on the syndication network of your choice. We're on iTunes. We're on a lot of other different outlets. Make sure you subscribe because you'll get immediate access to a deep treasure trove of topics relevant to business creators just like you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to leave a comment and leave a rating. Every five-star rating, every great review gives us the opportunity to serve more business creators just like you. Now, today we have a topic that I know has been on a lot of people's minds because I participate in discussion groups. I'm active on the interwebs and interpersonally, and particularly when it comes to the workplace, and we deal with gender issues and the role of women. This is something that is a very real thing for all business creators, all entrepreneurs, and all companies. So I'm very excited that we are going to be talking about today the topic of we, men, women, and the decisive formula for winning at work. And to share that with us today, we have Rania Anderson. And let me tell you about her. Rania is the author of We, Men, Women, and Decisive Formula for Winning at Work. And what she does is she strengthens and transforms the way men and women work together to improve their collective success. She sought after for her unique insights and expertise, and you can see her speaking at corporations, coaching business leaders, and she's an angel investor as well. She has a website, thewaywomenwork.com, and I encourage you to check that out. And what I'd like to do now is invite Ronnie in. Ronnie, come on in. The weather's fine. It's great to be with you today. Awesome, awesome. We have a ton of stuff to cover here because I've had a chance to check out some of what you do, and I know you have a lot of great insights that I think are extremely timely and timeless. So for somebody who may be listening three years from now, I can pretty much guarantee that the framework that Ronnie is going to share with you today is going to be just as relevant then as it is now. So be sure to bookmark this one and be sure to subscribe to us so you can go back and listen to it again and again. But before we do that, I know that we have some listeners who have a separate browser tab open. They're looking you up. They're looking up thewaywomenwork.com. And they want to know more. So what I'd like to do is just take a quick step back and have you tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving our business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. I love that you always ask that question, Adam. I think it, it gives business creators a good idea of how people get to where they are. And like most people, I have a slightly meandering path. I started my career in banking and I learned how to lend money to businesses. And when you're a commercial lender lending to businesses, you learn what makes businesses successful, both the people who run those businesses and how they run their businesses. So that's the core of my background. I did that um, early in my career and then had a lot of different roles at Bank of America. I was in training. I was in uh, human resources, and I did a lot of internal executive coaching in addition to that. I left the bank and started my own business in 1997 and 
started doing external executive coaching to business leaders like many of your listeners. And I mostly coached men. Uh, when, if you think back to 1997 and still today, we, most businesses are run still by men or larger businesses. And most of my clientele was men. And when I turned 50, which was in 2010, I went back to something I'd always wanted to do starting when I was a young girl. I am originally from the Middle East. And I grew up living all around the world, mostly in developing countries. And I kept thinking about educated women who lived in those economies and had professional careers or were entrepreneurs or business, uh, ran their own businesses and how all the career advice that's out there today is mostly written from a Western perspective for Westerners. And I, saw that there was a huge need for career advice for women in emerging economies. And so I wrote the first book for women in those markets, and the name of that book is Undeterred, The Six Success Habits of Women in Emerging Economies. Right. And I did a lot of speaking to women leaders all around the world and was very happy doing that. And this is going to bring us right back to where we want to be today. And then what happened was, Men like you, men like many of your listeners, began to ask me questions about how they should work more effectively with women. And what they said to me was, we're always giving women advice on how to work better with men, but we don't tell men how to work better with women. And I saw a need for that through those questions that my clients and people that I encountered on my speaking engagements were asking me. And so I began to do that work. And then we we had the Me Too um, incidents starting to really come to light and really decided that there is a missing gap between what we're talking about. We're talking always about what not to do and the things that don't go well, rather than looking at how do men and women who work well together succeed, and how do we do more of that? And that's really right. the focus of my book, We Men, Women, and the Decisive Formula for Winning at Work. Okay, that so is fantastic. It's a rather strange journey, but here I am. Exactly, and it's a great journey. And you know, I myself have had some interesting experiences. If I were to tell my full story, people would wonder, well, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> but, uh, but what's, in, what's interesting is we often do not foresee the opportunity to come to us. And in the process, or we, we want to call it the vision quest for finding the intersection of our brilliance and passion, that's something we can't always plan. And our efforts to plan that course will often lead us to junctures in the journey where things will be revealed to us that there's no way we could have foreseen. And sometimes external events also inspire us to create new areas of brilliance and passion through which we can serve the world. So I find that all very inspiring, and I'd like to dive in right now. So you mentioned that we're in the it's known as the Me Too area, era, rather, and a lot of what you hear in the news and some of the syndication on this topic has to do with telling men what not to do, and candidly, 
across the board, I can tell you that uh, that is not a message that is going over very well. And we could probably do a separate episode on how that sentiment right there is actually harmful to women. And those are sentiments that I actually agree with because I want to see women advance in the workplace and achieve everything they can. So in your new book, you advocate a different focus. And if you could tell us a little bit more about that and why we should take that different focus. Great. Adam, I agree with you. When you're trying to enlist someone and get them on your side and work collaboratively with them, the the avenue for doing that is not to shame or blame them. And also, when we tell men what not to do, we could get to, like, zero ground, like neutral. Things are just neutral. And we're not trying to get to neutral. We're trying to get to a place where men and women excel by working together. We know that we can create $12 trillion in additional global GDP if we do that. So my focus is on guiding men and managers, all managers, on how to work more effectively with women, giving them the tools to do that, showing them how their mentoring or sponsorship of women can advance women, talking to them about ways that they can do a better job in recruiting women, how to interest women to come and work for them, creating a work environment where both men and women want to work so that you don't have a large attrition rate of women leaving your workforce. Your show is about business creators who want, and, and your listeners want to have more successful businesses. Working well with women is a competitive business strategy, and so I approach it from that perspective. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic. And what I am sensing from that already, and I know we're going to cover more of this as we go through, is that is a message of inclusion and a message of mentorship and support, which I'd like to see more of. Because, again, going back to the sensationalism around this, what we see sometimes, and and I feel very bad about this, is I have uh, friends of mine who are men, and we can say, we'll just, you know, to use labels we're all familiar with, Republicans and Democrats, that uh, there are assumptions about what a man must be thinking or what his approach and beliefs must be, whether he's one label or the other. And I found that in practice, when you speak with real people dealing with real issues, that is absolutely not true. The fact that I'm encountering is that across the board, men are supportive, men are encouraging, men want to see everybody, men, women, everybody succeed and want to do their part to create a positive climate. So, Rania, we tend to hear stories about men who get it wrong. We have all these headline cases regarding sexual harassment and all that. You don't have to look very far to find one. So do you think that these tales are representative of most men out there? I've given my thoughts. What are yours? I, I agree with your thoughts. My experience over 30 years of, been, of working is, is that the vast majority of men uh, want to do the right things in the workplace, and they want to get ahead, and they're um, happy and fine and supportive of others getting ahead because they know that, right, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. So I have experienced the same thing you have. But what I often say is 
I don't know of any men who wake up in the morning and say, let me see, how am I going to keep women down today? Right. right. And so certainly the stories we hear are true, and certainly those incidents are egregious and horrible and should not be tolerated or acceptable or eradicated from our workplaces. I believe that that is not the the majority. In fact, it's a small minority. And so what I want to do is focus on men like you and your listeners who are working collaboratively with women. I want to make an important point here. We often talk about men working with women to help women or for women to advance. And the, the, the lens that I look at is when we work collaboratively together, we both advance. So you right. and I, Adam, are here today, and we both have goals that we have for our own businesses, and we're working collaboratively together on this call, and that's going to help my business, and it's going to help yours. You're, you didn't have me on the show just to help me, right? We're, we're right. creating something together that's helpful to all of us. Exactly. So when we focus on these negative stories, what do we lose? I think what we, we lose is that so many things. First of all, if you're a man who doesn't do anything that egregious, you think, well, I'm doing great, when in reality you might not be, right? But you're comparing yourself to such a negative example. Right. When we don't tell stories of people who are doing things well, then other people cannot emulate those good examples. So they will know what not to do, but it doesn't give them any indication of what to do. I mean, let's let's look at this from a business perspective for a moment. It would be crazy if you had on your show only people who did everything wrong and that's all you talked about was everything they did wrong in their business. How would anyone learn what to do well to grow their business or get funding or or do a better job in marketing? We have to Nothing. show Yeah. So we have to show lots of examples of people succeeding. I'm going to give you just a very, very quick, small one. Uh, a woman that I know recently went on a job interview, and the, the male interviewer asked her what she wanted to, to make if she was offered the job, and she told him what she wanted to make, and he looked at her and said, you will be making a lot more money than that here. That is someone who knows that some women tend to undervalue themselves and rather than thinking to himself, oh, I can get this woman for, you know, a cheap price, he knew that she was worth a lot more than that. And he put it out there for her that it was important to him that she be appropriately compensated. So we don't tell those kind of small stories and much larger and longer ones um, that I'm happy to share, but we need those examples so we know what to do. Yeah, let me link that back to something else here, which is an even larger issue. And we see this uh, when we deal with internal promotions within companies and also people who do, uh, who do diagonal moves, uh, moving up by getting hired by other companies, is there's this focus on, uh, well, how much do you make your, your previous position? 
and they'll go have some calculation where they'll give the person three to five percent more and say, well, that's a raise for you, regardless of what jump they're making. I mean, they could be making a quantum leap. They could be going from a job or a position within the company that is way below their pay grade and finally stepping up to the place where their brilliance, their passion, their skills, and their, and their abilities are going to finally be brought to full bear. That might not necessarily speak to, well, we should give them 3 to 5%. That should possibly mean they should be getting 20% more, 30% more. I ran into this when I was working for a company, and I made uh, an internal diagonal move. I moved into a different department. Uh, yep. I, you know, the, you know, the opposite exemption status and uh, was moved into a supervisory role. And I was told uh, during the process of the transfer interview what the pay for the new position would be. And uh, they were, and then when it actually came back, uh, I found out there was a company policy that, oh, we can only move your pay up by 10% regardless of anything. Now, I was moving from an administrative assistant position, the job I had while I was in MBA school, so I could have a full-time job and not have to break a sweat over it, to moving into a supervisory position where I managed a process. That was worth more than 10%. And, yeah, it doesn't make any and, sense. And, and, let, and let's take it to another level. That put me at a disadvantage for anything else I did within that company because if I jumped up to a director-level position, they could say, well, you only get 10% more. And then an employer from another uh, company that I could be interviewing with could have said, okay, well, you're making this, so, you know, it's really only worth it to give you 5% more. I've seen some states that are beginning legislation to actually make it illegal to ask an applicant how much they make at their current or most recent job, and I support it for that reason. I do as well, and I was going to bring that up. It's, a, it's a, I think, a great practice, and when we bring that back to the gender lens, Historically, women have not been very good at, or many women have not been good at negotiating those salaries, or they might have taken uh, a hiatus from working for a couple of yeah. years to spend at home, and then they're back in the workforce, and then they're, um, you know, gained for this salary that they had forever. They're penalized for that rather than just looking specifically at this is what this job is, this is what it's worth, this is what I pay other people with this skill set to do this job, and that's what I should offer for the job. And that's what that interviewer did with the female candidate that, that I mentioned. He, he was going to pay her fairly and do the right thing. Let me give you, let me give you another place, Sam, and, and you touched on this, is one of the things we hear – uh, for the argument that I'm, I'm going to be very blunt about this. Some people have actually said that it's hard to justify giving women equal pay when they take maternity leaves after they have babies or they ask for reduced schedules so they can be around their young children more. And the argument is, well, they're doing less work, so you shouldn't give them as much money. Okay, now let's set that aside and let's add another layer to this that nobody's talking about because we haven't gotten there yet as a society, at least not here in the United States, is what if we get to a point where we have paternity leave? And there is a movement for that. It's not spoken about much, but it's there. Because, you know, when we have, uh, you know, you have two-parent households, uh, you have both parents working, 
and maybe there's a situation where it makes more sense for the man to stay home for the first six weeks. So, and maybe it makes more sense for the man to have the one to have the reduced schedule so he can be around the kids more. Sometimes that's the way the dynamic works. Maybe one totally. half of the couple, you know, maybe one half of the couple has a, a career that uh, is really, you know, not something that they can take a break from. Where maybe it's the man who just doesn't have the same career ambition. And I've, and I've seen this. I've seen women who are senior executives in company and their husband has a career path that doesn't really, you know, to, you know, for lack of a better term, because this isn't a good one, he's just not motivated to work very hard. He just wants to follow his uh, artistic talent. And right, or he, in, that, he has, in, that case, he just in makes, that case, it makes sense for the man to stay home with with the kid. And, it, and, it's, and it's the same with homosexual couples as well. There may be an imbalance of, in terms of how much one has a career that's worth caring about. So, where do we draw the line on this? And, and if and, you know, just sticking with men and women and where we are now, if men want to say something like, "Well, uh, it is true that they take maternity leaves and then they ask for reduced schedules so they can be around the kids more," well, what if that turns around and that man finds himself in a situation where he's the half of the couple who they make the decisions as a couple that he's the one that's going to spend more time with the kids? Should he be penalized yep. in his career and salary advancements? because of that very specious and unfair argument. So I would say neither should, and we have lots of yeah. companies in the U.S. where men are taking paternity leave, and to your point, um, it, we have many households where the women are the primary wage earner and, or the, have the primary career, and, and men yeah. are spending more time in childcare. So we have to get away from this, antiquated 18th century uh, yeah. model of we time at work, right? What we have yeah. to look at is what is the output that people are providing? What is the results and the contributions that they make to the organization? And we've got to pay them for that, not for the number of hours that they work. And this brings in, you know, yet another factor around this issue. It's, it, you know, we came up with this schedule. We get to work at a certain time. We leave at a certain time from the days when people worked in factories. And now we're in the fourth industrial revolution, and we're still right. thinking about it that way rather than saying these are the results that I have tasked you with. And if you produce those results, then that's what I need you to do. Obviously, every type of business doesn't have that kind of flexibility. If you have a retail store or, you know, a call center, you can't just go home, right? The, the right. phones have to be answered. The store has to be open. But a lot of businesses have that flexibility. And when we look at not measuring people by presence but by production, we begin to strip away this issue of how much should that person be paid, man or woman. And that's where we've got to go. Yeah, exactly. Now, you've cited research on the business case for having more women at all levels of organizations. So I, and I can already hear people saying, well, what are we going to do, have a quota system where we have to have X number of women and X number of men regardless of job qualification? Let's set that aside and not even deal with that. But let's deal with, um, you know, give us an overview of why gender balance as a principle and 
something that we should strive toward is important in the workplace. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So we, the, we have mountains of data that show us that gender-balanced leadership teams make more money, the companies have higher share prices, they make better decisions, they have higher returns on equity. And that data is out there in spades. And it's pretty logical if you think about it, not just in terms of gender, but other types of diversity. You, you know this from your work and working with so many people. When, when we surround a business issue with multiple perspectives, we think about it in different ways, we make better decisions, we consider more things. So, yeah. I always say to people, it's, you know, it's just something that's logical. And if you want your business to be successful and win in the marketplace and you don't have diversity in your company, gender or otherwise, you're absolutely going to miss out on something. Now, you said earlier you want to be direct. I'm going to be a little direct here and be a little provocative. I ask the question often of what is the business case for the status quo? Like people Uh ask me to make the business case for why we should have gender balance. And I often say to them, what is the business case for gender imbalance or having only one type of people be in power? Like what's good about that? I, I don't think there is so much good about that. Right? So (laughs) I think the onus should be on people to say, why why should we keep it the same? Rather than making people who want to have a change have to make the case for why we should change. I I don't think organizations run by all women or all men or all anything are as good as companies that are run by people who are old and young, black and white, uh, uh-huh. of different genders, of different socioeconomic perspectives from different geographies. Yeah, here's, um, here's an epiphany I had very recently. I was checking out a company, and I went to the page where they had their executive management leadership team, and I was scrolling through this, and some of my listeners are going to say, Adam, why are you going there? But I think it's important we do. <laughs> uh, and I and I scrolled through it, and I basically what I saw were a bunch of middle-aged white males. Now, being a middle-aged white male, uh, I did not think, wow, these people are like me. I want to work with them. That did not come up for me. What came up for me is no judgment about whether or not they're a good team. I mean, it looked like they had a successful company, so they're probably doing great things. But there was just something instinctive about that that made me think, you know, when they have their board meetings and when they have their executive conversations, I'm wondering what might be missing just because you have what appear to be on the surface, and again, we don't know what people in people's hearts, is a um a sense of, you know, all coming from a similar background, uh, all facing the same things coming at them externally because of their outward physical appearance, which is unfair to them. And at the same time, it's like, uh, but, you know, I'm wondering if maybe something 
might be missing in some of those conversations. That's just what came up for me. And if that's the case, then I would argue that maybe we are doing something of a good job of helping people see the power and importance of diversity. Yep. So, Adam, you just gave us an example of a guy doing it right, right? That we started our conversation with talking about how we don't think about that enough. You have this awareness now. You might have had it for a long time. You might have had it recently, but you're looking at management teams in a different way. That, To your point, that management team could be great as it is, but as you're consulting or coaching or working with people, now your antenna is raised and you're going to ask those questions, which is going to cause their awareness to be raised and, and hopefully lead, lead to some change. And that's what it's going to take individually. Each of us has to be more aware and take some actions that will, will create a dynamic where men and women have equal opportunities to lead and work together. Right. It's just, yeah, and to me, and I'm not even saying that uh, that company is bad. I mean, that could be a dynamic, right. awesome management team, and I might be thinking if I were to go back and do a career path, I might want to work there. And I might look at that team and say, wow, these are evolved, uh, you know, open, diverse people, and they really get a lot of things right here. That could be my reaction, and, and, and I'm open to that as well. And at the same time, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, if we were to develop a management team somewhere, let's just make sure we have the awareness of any subtleties that may get in the way, despite our own intentions, of seeing every opportunity. That's right. And when I look at your, you know, your guests that you've had on your show, Adam, I see so much variety in the type of people and in gender and all of that. And it's, I think one of the things that makes this podcast interesting and valuable to your listeners is that you're bringing people from, from different perspectives and it's, it's no different for anyone who's starting or running a business. Right. Very true. So we've covered a couple things already that we were planning to get into, so I'd like to skip ahead just a little bit and get into some of the work that you've done. Now, uh, Rania, you've developed what you call the WE 4.0 framework, and it lays out four key actions that will maximize one own, one's own success as well as business results. And you identify that as eliminate, expand, encourage, and engage. Aside from the fact that I like things that all start with the same letter, can you describe this for us and why this is something that our listeners should perhaps write down right now? Great. So in the book, We, Men, Women, and the Decisive Formula for Winning at Work, this framework is the core or the framework for the entire how the book's organized. And it really talks about what are the things that you should eliminate from your workplace so that both men and women succeed. So we've talked already about sexual harassment and sexism. We know we, sh you know, that has no place. But an another example of something you would look at and see if it would elim you would eliminate it are practices that might adversely impact women more than men. Let me give you an example. If you always have meetings that start at 7 a.m. in the morning just because you like to have 7 a.m. meetings, the chances are that you're making it more difficult for women than you are with men because in today's world, women still have more of the home and family responsibilities. 
Now, if there is a reason for you to have that 7 a.m. meeting, you should do that. But if there isn't a business reason for doing that, you would look at that kind of practice and maybe change it. So that's eliminate. Expand right. is around looking at your interactions and the types of interactions that you're having with women. So how often are you interacting with women as compared to men? And what types of interactions are you having? All the way from who do you have lunch with every day? Who do you call if you need to bat around a business idea? What, what, who do you hang out with when you're networking, right? So thinking about the gender makeup of your interactions. And then secondarily, what are you doing to expand the number of women in your organization through your recruiting? So looking right. at what are the strategies you can use to bring more women in. Encourage is, is mostly about retention and how uh, your actions can encourage women to participate, to give their input, and to stay at your company. Uh, an example of that is if you are always interrupting the women that work for you, you don't let them have their voice to be heard, or you give them the assignments that are not desirable, you're not encouraging their development, they're probably going to leave your organization and, and go work somewhere else. And lastly, it's how you engage as a leader. Are you doing the kinds of things, Adam, that you were just talking about, looking at organizations and thinking about their gender makeup and how that might be helpful to them? Are you championing initiatives that help uh, both genders in your company succeed? So it's really about being intentional in, in your individual actions, this framework is. And I'll make one more point. We talk a lot about the role of executives and government and uh, society in terms of gender, but what we haven't talked about very much is our individual role and how our daily actions can create new, a new type of culture, and that's what the book We Really is about. Yeah, and going back to what I, you know, my thing earlier about when I said, wow, I saw those that management team, and they were all people who, on the surface, look and seem to come from places like I do. Uh, and you also heard me say earlier that the idea of a quota system and having like an exact parity of three men and three women, all the, and all that, is something that you know is very difficult to achieve, and in some ways could actually be counterproductive if you really want to dig into it. What I was trying to emphasize with that is. Some of this cannot be tracked simply by counting numbers or looking at spreadsheets and statistics and things like that. It's something that's within us that causes us to look at something and observe for ourselves that maybe there's something else we need to ask. Maybe there's something else we need to look at. Not that necessarily what here is wrong or right, but are we asking every question? Are we looking at every opportunity for this organization, for this culture? And Adam, wouldn't you say that's what we do with all our businesses? I mean, a good business yeah. owner, leader, consultant, coach, that's what we do, right? We look at when we're trying to make a business decision, we say, have we considered everything? What have we not thought about? What are we, you know, 
not taking into account. And we recognize that when we all come at it from the same perspective, we probably have some blind spots. And so we've right. got to open ourselves to that. And that's really what we're talking about here. When we have gender balanced uh, teams, we cover more of the bases. Yeah. Yeah, very true. So a lot of leaders out there think that they're doing all they can to recruit and retain women. And yet, despite all their efforts and all their perfectly good intentions, they're, they're great people and, and they actually may well be doing everything right as much as we can quantify that. But at the same time, the workforces continue to remain imbalanced when it comes to gender, uh, like imbalanced to the point where it's glaring. So what is your advice when you have that situation? So what I often encounter is people saying to me, I'm doing everything right, and when I dive into it, I see they're actually making a lot of inadvertent mistakes. So uh-huh. I want to be specific for, for those who are listening. So, for example, when they post a job, they post a job that has a laundry list of qualifications that literally nobody ever meets. Like they've never hired a candidate who meets those qualifications. But what we know about a difference between men and women is men will apply for a job where they meet 50 to 60% of qualifications. They think, "I, I got half of this covered. I can figure out the rest of it. Whereas women will not apply for a job unless they meet 80 to 90% of the qualifications. So women will automatically not apply for that job. So I, I would say to a business leader or owner, why do you have all these qualifications? You know, do you actually need all these things? No. Does anybody actually have all these things? No. Well, you're not helping yourself when you put them in a job description. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, and that's a Those are the kinds of examples that we, we do where we shoot ourselves in the foot. We think we're doing well, but we're not. Yeah. Rania, on paper, every job I had before I started my entrepreneurial venture, I wasn't qualified for any of them on paper. Uh, but I got the jobs because Somebody saw in me some combination of ability, enthusiasm, brilliance, and passion that they felt would be an asset to the team and an asset to the organization. Uh, Most of those worked out well. There are one or two that didn't. I think everybody has stories around that. But it goes to the point of what are we really doing with these job descriptions? And I understand that there are certain legalities involved in that. But, yeah, to your point, when you have a job description – I'm just going to come up with a, an example here. Let's say the position pays $32,000 a year, and it's uh, and it's like a coordinator-type position. Not quite management, but not rank and file either. And it has two pages of bullet points on what qualifies you for that job. Uh, are we re- were you asking questions like, uh, how, you know, how does this person deal with managing processes? Because if you're a coordinator, you're coordinating something. Uh, how do they... Uh, what is their general background of the industry that they're in? Because in order, because if you understand the industry and you understand some of the trends, nuances, and other things related to that industry, you can adapt the work you do sitting at your desk to that industry with no problem in most cases. So I also see 
and I got caught up in this once uh, after I got my MBA, and my MBA was in human resource management. So my career dream was to be a training and development director for a Fortune 100. That's where I was headed with it. And <laughs> the next the next step I saw is that the company I was working for, where I had that administrative assistant job that so I could have a job through MBA school that was somewhat related to what I was looking for that would uh, get me at least you know, on a trajectory with me having to break a sweat with evenings and weekends and such. Uh, what opened up two months after I got the MBA, but a human resource generalist position, which, you know, you'd think on paper, well, here's a guy who's actually worked internally in the training and development department for three years who has some hands-on work with developing training programs, who has actually done trainings for employees and has worked with developing processes and systems for helping people work together more effectively. So you could take that skill and mate it with a knowledge of human resource law and procedure, and you could have a great generalist. But uh, yep. yeah, I guess some of those bullet points didn't apply to me. And then here's the other thing. Uh, the human resource director, who was a friend of mine, actually, actually he was the guy who got me the job in the company in the first place because I had met him at another job I would worked a few years earlier, and he remembered me when he was trying to fill that administrative assistant position. He even, without using the exact words, he basically was candid that even before he had begun the search for a human resource journalist to work with him, that he already had decided who he was going to hire, but the laws required him to do an interview process and see other candidates, even though he already knew which one was going to apply and which one he was going to pick. And that pick had already been approved by senior management, but he had to go through the process. So what the hell kind of process is that? And this is a guy, his outlook was kind of like it is what it is, and you have to find what you need to do to survive in the corporate world. And I, I got that, too. He was you know, dealing with the reality of the situation. But if that's the reality of the situation, I can't see that being helpful, especially to women. Right. It's it's not helpful. And, and when – we draw on those networks or we, we do those things. I can't tell you how many times women have come to me and say, well, I'm interested in this job, but it says I need, you know, some little esoteric thing, and I, I, I don't have that. And it's like, well, who cares? You've got all this other right. stuff. And yet men like you, you, you know, you just shared that most of the jobs you applied for and got, you weren't qualified for. And so – when we look at our recruiting processes, we have to think about those things, right? We've got to think about it, it, we're marketing. We, we live in a world today where there are more job openings than there are people to fill those jobs, seven million, almost seven million openings. And right. we're fighting for talent. We also know that 50% of college students, if not more, are women. So how are you going to recruit talent for your job if you're going to, you know, not be appealing to more than half the educated population? You can't win in your business. And so it's, right. it's my book, we really talk, it's so specific about looking at where did you post that job? What words did you use? How many qualifications did you put there? How did you do the interview? How did you bring in the candidates? Thinking about each step of that process will give you insights into why it's not working. And yeah. we, 
the 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 frame that I give my clients and I talk in my you know keynotes about is we've got to stop thinking about why didn't she apply or why did she leave or why didn't she raise her hand and we have to ask the we question we have to say what didn't we do that women didn't apply what are huh. we not doing that women are leaving our organization what can we do to create a different environment and when we begin to look at our own actions the the answers will come to us for what we could do differently and the pipeline for our organization will increase yeah i'm not saying it's easy i'm not saying that you know in some you know different sectors or for some types of jobs it is hard to bring women into those roles because women you know haven't studied the, those things or don't have those degrees or don't have those interests i'm not saying it's easy but oftentimes we're creating barriers for ourselves that we don't need to have there right right now we have about uh about uh, i think 14 minutes left here and there are two very important things i still want to cover before i give you a moment at the end so two very important questions um and maybe three if we get there. So let's see how fast we can move. Uh, women of, often seek out mentors, and mentors are great. But you've argued, and this is something that I agree with from several different angles, is it's equally, if not important, for them to have sponsors. So what I'd like to do is bifurcate the difference between a mentor and a sponsor and what we need to know about how to be a good sponsor. Great. Thanks for asking about that. It's one of the most important things that we can do to advance women. So a mentor is someone who talks to you in private and they give you guidance. They tell you the things, give you ideas on what you should do. Right. A sponsor is someone who has the power and authority and influence who can talk about you in public and they give you opportunities. So let me give a specific example here, Adam. If I were mentoring you you were asking me questions about your business, we'd go for coffee and I'd say, why don't you try this? Why don't you call so-and-so? Why don't you do that? And if I were sponsoring you, and I'm not the right sponsor for you, I'm just using this as a hypothetical example, I would talk about you and talk about your business and help bring people's attention to what you're doing and help you bring, develop business, right? And in a corporation, if you're sponsoring someone, you would say, give Adam that opportunity or give Mary that opportunity. And someone might say, well, she's not ready for it. And you would say, they can, she can do it. Give her the chance. That's what sponsorship looks like. And we right. know that women are over-mentored and under-sponsored in comparison to men, that men sponsor more men. There's a piece of it, research that came out just today that shows that over 71% of executives still mentor and sponsor people of the same gender and the same race as themselves. And uh -huh. this one difference is really a barrier to women advancing into leadership. And if we just could change you know, do more sponsorship of women, it, we would go far with um, our results.
Right. Great. So one of women's greatest workplace frustrations is a sense that they express that they're not really listened to in meetings. So what steps can people take to amplify women's voices and how can these steps be applicable for other people? Because I also have had challenges in that area myself just for various reasons. But when we deal with this, how do we amplify the voices in meetings? Because I can see from a woman's perspective how that could be a real challenge. Correct. And and I like that you brought up that it's not just women introverts get overlooked in meetings. Yes. People yes. Who, who don't assert themselves also get overlooked. And those are the voices that you know, to our earlier conversation, we need to bring in so that we're hearing from multiple perspectives. So what do we do? Well, we're, there's a lot of things we could do. We could, uh, when someone, a woman gets her interrupted, we could say, hey, Adam, hold on a second. Mary wasn't finished talking. Or if you started speaking and I couldn't stop you, I would go back to Mary and I'd say, Mary, um, I'd like to hear more about what you were saying, Right. Another strategy would be we would bring back into a conversation, do you remember a few minutes ago when Mary was talking about this idea? That's amplifying Mary's voice. If we don't hear from Mary throughout the whole meeting, we would want to call on her. Mary, we haven't heard from you in a while. What's your perspective on this? And if she still doesn't speak up, I'd talk to Mary after the meeting and say, I'd really like your input. Please come to the next meeting prepared with your perspective. So there's yeah. lots of ways we can make sure that everyone on, at the table is heard and we can reinforce opposing perspectives and create the space for women and others who are not heard from to be heard. Right, and it's a completely separate conversation, so I don't want to spend time on this at all, but uh, if we want to go into meeting management, we can also look at, does Mary even need to be at that meeting? So maybe it has not been defined for Mary why she's even there, or maybe there's a different meeting she needs to be in instead, instead of instead of that one. And uh, without getting into that, because that's a completely separate interview, I would say that we would want to protect Mary to make sure that she, I won't use protect actually, uh, as much as encourage and amplify to give her the confidence to maybe make the case that her time is being wasted and she's of more value to the organization elsewhere. Or, or, or oftentimes it's the opposite where women are not being invited to the meeting when they should yeah. be. So I think it's more That's the a, latter is, we we don't realize that we haven't invited Mary and we actually need her to be in the meeting and right. uh, we need to make space for her to be there. So it, it could go both ways. All of which goes back to meeting design and uh, identifying you know, where people really need to be. And uh, there's also the completely separate topic of are we inviting people just so that uh, we can make it look like we're representing people or are we truly representing people? So there's a lot of places we can go, go with that. But there's one more thing that I want to get into, and this is something that uh, burns my oatmeal on a lot of different levels. So I wanted to kind <laughs> of get through that so we can cover this last thing because um, I freaking hate performance reviews. Uh, they, are the, they were the bane of my existence. When I was working for companies, again, because uh, I did not even try to conform to expectations, I was focused on the value that I brought in my own way. Uh, but I can see that for women, uh, 
and everybody really, let's stay focused on women because that's what this is about, uh, the standard performance review process can disadvantage women. Um, I can see why I want you to tell us and what we can do about it. Great. Well, I think we could, to your point, we could talk about performance reviews for three hours, and there's so much wrong with so many performance reviews. But we're going to just take it for this answer that you have a normal performance, uh, kind of traditional performance review process in your organization. And what happens with most performance reviews is the employee rates themselves and then they give the review to the manager and the manager completes it. Well, what we know about women is that they rate themselves more harshly and they are more humble in talking about their accomplishments. They're not good at promoting themselves and they evaluate themselves more stringently. So now, Adam, you have both Sue and Joe that work for you. And Sue gives you a review and she's been very hard on herself. Even if you recognize that and you bring her up a little bit, she's her review is probably going to be not as glowing as Joe who wrote all these amazing things about himself because he didn't have a problem with that. So right. that process doesn't it, – it puts women at advantage. By the way, it puts lots of other people at a, at a, a disadvantage. We have a lot of people in our country who come from cultures where promoting yourself and bragging about yourself is not a, a thing that, you know, is – is acceptable. And so if you have people like that working in your organization or junior people who don't understand how to do write a self-assessment, then they're going to be also disadvantaged. So it's not a good practice. Right. And let me, uh, let me share one other thing. And um, I had a supervisor once, one of my supervisors when I had that administrative assistant job 20 years ago, and he told me quite candidly, uh, my performance review uh, was supposed to give me on a scale of one to five. And he actually came out and said, look, I'd love to give you a five, but I've already been told by my director, I'm only allowed to give you a three, and I have to identify things you've done wrong because there's only so much in the budget, and I have to conform with uh, legalities. So yeah, a crazy. woman comes in, a woman comes in, she gives herself that more self-aware and, for lack of a better word, harsh review that supervisor's job is done. It's like, okay, Mary needs improvement. Let me t- let me just copy what Mary said she needs yep. improvement on. I'll give her the three, and that's good. Uh, maybe I can even give her a two, and I can score some points from these uh, pencil pushers. Joe comes in, <laughs> and he praised himself, and the supervisor says, well, there's not a lot of bad I can say about Joe because he's pointed out all these good things, and I can't really remember he screwed up. So I can't give him less than a three. In fact, I might have to give him a four just out of fairness and balance it against Mary's two. So – you take stuff like that, something that was blatantly represented to me in that manner, and he was just being honest with me. He was trying to be helpful and help me see the reality of the situation. Uh, if that happened at that company, which uh, was a progressive company that had all the seals and everything else, for lack of a better phrase, do you think that happens in a lot of other organizations as well? I would say, yeah. Yep, it, it does, and then it affects that person's salary, and then it affects their promotion and and there we go with our gender imbalance that we don't want. Right. And that supervisor might not even be thinking of gender. They may not have that programming. They may not have that awareness. All they're seeing is 
Mary made it easy for me to give her a two. Joe made it impossible for me to give him less than a four. So let me just sign off on these, and if nobody complains, my job is done. And and that's why, and, and maybe that's a good place for us to end. Really, the my work in the book and, and what I advocate is that each of us individually can make a huge difference in terms of gender balancing our organization and really help our organization be more successful because of it. That we don't need human resources or executives or government to do that for us. That individually, we can take some very specific, simple actions that don't cost money. And if you're looking for all of a whole list of those types of ideas, uh, check out We, Men, Women, and the Decisive Formula for Winning at Work. Great. So what I'd like to do here is, um, and, and again, I think this would be a great place to wrap up. And let me just make one parting observation to myself is, you know, you've said that, you know, government and human resources and regulations can't do this for us. And that's actually a sentiment I agree with. I think that uh, we can regulate ourselves into the ground and all that's really going to more or less guarantee is the possibility of resentment and inertia. But when we give individuals the, the awareness and the personal power to recognize things and advocate for change and sponsor change, that in the long run is going to make a much bigger impact on these issues. Right. I think we need both, and but we've had a lot of the other and not enough of the individual. And yeah. in some countries, certainly government needs to step up and change laws, et cetera. But it, in the United States, it's really us that needs individually to step up to the plate. I think that's perfect. We have two minutes left. I want to give one of them to you. I imagine somebody out there sitting on the edge of their seat wanting to know where this goes from here. So just uh, take a minute and uh, one minute and tell us a little bit more about how you serve business creators. Well, I, I work with business creators in, in two ways. One as an executive coach and two in in my speaking. And I'm about helping people to accelerate their own success by strength, focusing on their strengths and making them aware of specific actions they can take that make a difference. And I'm really focused in this space now of uh, guiding organizations to gender balance and appreciate you so much, Adam, for giving me the opportunity to share a few of my thoughts. Absolutely. And uh, uh, if you just tell us your website one more time where people can go to connect with you. Great. It's thewaywomenwork.com. Great. Absolutely. So, Ronnie Anderson, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and, believe me, an education. Thanks, Adam. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>